Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Did You Miss Us edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. And if you're like, you know, anybody who's not my mother, you're probably wondering why the hell we weren't on last week. I'm sure you all missed us. But as it turns out, none of the panel was actually in Washington on a day when uh, we could all be in the studio. So we missed a week. I'm sorry. I missed you, Shane. I missed you too tomorrow. Oh. Yeah. Where were you having fun? I was in Israel. You were in Israel. Where were you, Benjamin? I was in New York, and then I was in Los Angeles. And I was in San Francisco. I was actually at the Hoover Institution. So we could have, like, done an all-in-flight Skype edition. We could have done it, yeah. Wow. That I, don't been awesome. can, I don't think you can Skype in-flight. You certainly can't do it on United Airlines, which is one of our non-sponsors this week. Oh, yeah. United we're, Airlines we're, with their shitty Wi-Fi. Right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about our, our, our non-sponsors between the segments. <laughs> um, well, thanks for listening. And sorry if you guys were wondering where we were last week, but, uh, you know, it just, it, it just didn't happen. Until we have sponsors to make us be here. That's right. People we owe content to. Right. We reserve the right to take off for this the week. This is a volunteer operation. Absolutely. All right. But this week, we have lots to catch up on. Big news happening. Uh, President Obama is sending 50 special forces into Syria. A new book marks the 20th anniversary of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And a new Twitter war is erupting over drone strikes. And shockingly, it does not involve Ben Wittes. But it does involve Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, those are the best ones, actually. It's going to be good. All right, so um, I'll, start, I'll kick us off uh, with my wordplay, which I guess it's more of a number play, the number 50. Uh, so President Obama has announced that he's going to send 50 Special Forces members into Syria. Which is 100 boots on the ground. It is 100 boots, but it's a very light footprint. Yes, they're very light Special yeah, Forces. Yeah, it's, it's wafer like- thin. This it's a wafer thin. It's a wafer thin. You will not feel a thing. Uh, yeah. So this is, uh, you know, it obviously is a major uh, reversal uh, from the White House's previous position of not putting forces on the ground. Although the White House insists that's not true because this is just an extension of the kind of advisory slash not exactly combat role. Um, that we've been pursuing uh, in that area with respect to the war against ISIS. Um, I guess what I want to put out there as a question is, um, is that entirely nonsense? Um, is, should we be reading this as the beginning of a much heavier footprint, a kind of mission creep that is emerging in Syria? Um, why should we expect that these 50 individuals will not be in harm's way or engaging in combat when, A, the Secretary of Defense has said that we might have forces in combat, and, of course, we did uh, have suffer one uh, uh, fatality when uh, U.S. forces recently raided a prison, an ISIS prison, in Iraq. So should we be reading this as an evolution in the war in Syria, or is this just like, you know, a little teensy bit more than what we were doing before, but ultimately not that significant? So, look, my own 
consistent take has been that the U.S. is on a slippery slope to greater involvement um, because uh, the objective defined by the United States, which is degrading and defeating ISIS, um, simply can't be achieved in the current context, given the level of commitment that the United States has made so far. You can't have that kind of objective and and the minimal investment um, that we've seen so far. The local partners simply aren't capable, and that's precisely why uh, the administration made the decision to go ahead and send these special operations forces, because the only effective counter-ISIS um, fighters inside Syria are the YPG, this mm-hmm, Kurdish militia right. in northern Syria, and some um, still amorphous Arab militias that seem to be getting some help from the Kurds as well. And so, you know, if the U.S. wants to have any alternative in Syria other than ISIS or Assad, uh, it still has to do the work to build that itself. And these 50 guys are supposed to be, um, as you know, as far as I can see from the reporting, in a sort of train and assist capacity. Because that's going great. Well, right. But, you know, at least having them closer to the theater and involved with guys who are actually engaged in the fight, as opposed to people who will theoretically engage right. in the fight at some future time, um, I think it's more likely to have an effect than the efforts we've seen so far. But, yes, it's a slippery slope. It's very slippery. And if, you know, if these guys are going to be anywhere near harm's way, especially with Russia flying and uh, and Assad clearly, you know, holding on for dear life at this point, um, I, I think it's quite possible that either the U.S. will find itself in a position where its guys come under attack and, and it feels compelled to respond, or um, the people that it's helping, the YPG and, and this new Syrian Arab coalition, uh, find themselves in a place where they need more support from the U.S. military. And the New York Times had that great story, great story this week too, looking at the, essentially the the the, the people that we've trained and equipped. I mean, apart from the, the, this 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 handful of individuals who were there, and it really existed name only, and making out the point that the YPG is really the actual force on the ground. I mean. Another way to think about this, though, is that it's not that it's a slippery slope. It's that that our mission objectives are completely inconsistent with uh, the commitment that we've made so far, and so we need to make a decision as to whether our we're taking that mission seriously, in which case we need to do more, or in which we need to change the mission parameters, in which case we could do it, uh, you know, if we change, say, degrade and destroy to annoy and irritate, <laughs> we'd really be succeeding. We, we could sort of do it from the air. How about, how, about, and, how about taunt and vaguely threaten? Yeah, exactly. And so, I, I mean, I think, but I think what this does show is that the mission objectives that we've set are, and the tools that we've defined to use it are totally incommensurate with one another. And by the way, 50, I guess, 100 boots on the ground um, is not going to materially change that. Right. Well, the, look, these guys are not there to do combat missions. They're there to train and advise. And, you know, in theory, that will make the local fighters more effective. Right? So, I mean, I, fundamentally, I agree with you, Ben. I think that's more or less what I was saying. And this is merely an incremental increase in right. the commitment right. rather than the scale of increase of commitment that would be necessary to really... Um, compensate for the fact that the local partners are not really capable. 
Is there a risk too that as we put, let's say we put these fifty people in there, they start training, they start doing things on the ground. There's a sense of momentum and a progress. Does that then become a temptation to say, well, but oh, if we could with fifty more, think of what we could do? And, oh, you mean and, success might lead to escalation, not sure. only failure. Sure. Yeah, I think that is a danger actually because. You know, then you get this sort of let the let the army win dynamic going right, on. Right, yeah, that's it's a very good point. I think the other potential complication here is that you know these fifty special operations forces are supposed to be helping the YPG, this Kurdish militia, um, among others, and you know this is going to make the Turks more nervous than ever, uh-huh. right? So this is in northern Syria. It's near the Turkish border. The Turks are already really, really anxious about Kurdish nationalist aspirations. Erdogan just used the Kurdish nationalist threat to mobilize his own base and finally win a majority in his in his neck in this new round of elections. And so you know what does this do to U.S. Turkish cooperation? Now I'm sure the administrations thought that one through. But there's no question that it's complicated, and the and the dynamics are not entirely predictable where it goes from here. And we've talked on the show before too about how the question of <clears throat> U.S. forces in Syria slash Iraq fighting ISIS would become a point in the presidential debate. I mean, it seems like, and in, in, in the in, in the campaign as well. I mean, it seems like this insertion of you know 50 troops. I mean, is going to be seized on politically. But what degree. are the Republicans going to do? They're going to say, well, no, we shouldn't. Their whole no, position no, no. has been like, that we should be doing more. I think it's going to be that. I think you're going to see people saying he's finally coming 50? around to our position. Right. But then, and then does that then pressure Hillary Clinton to say like, oh, I do a hundred. I mean, do you, is there a risk of them I'll getting into see some you sort of... 50 combat troops <clears throat> right. in an advise and assist role and raise you a thousand fully combat-equipped wow. Marines see, and Special Forces. I, I see this very, very differently, although I'm curious I'm curious for your take in response to what I'm about to say, which is, to me, there's a real vulnerability for Republican candidates here because their natural instinct is to say, oh, come on, 50, that's not serious. If he were really serious, he'd send in the, you know, the, the, um, the full force of yeah. the U.S. military. Um, but the Republican base is as reticent about these um, endless military entanglements as the rest of the right. United States electorate. And so it seems to me that this actually gets right at a potential split within the Republican Party over the role of American force and, and America's role in the world. This so remi- I think it's, it's risky for Republicans. reminds candidates. me of the Woody right. Allen joke that begins Annie Hall, where Woody Allen says, you know, to... Catskill, two women, old Jewish women are at a Catskill mountain resort and one of them says to the other, the food here is terrible and such small portions. <laughs> and that's the Republican, it's terrible that you're getting involved again in Syria and such small troop numbers. Such small troop numbers. All right, well, we'll check back in next week when, uh, <clears throat> you know, it'll either be 100 or 150. Um, okay, uh, Tamara, your wordplay, it's a, it's, a, it's another number. It's the number 20, really, yeah? It is the number 20. And, um, I, I, you know, I was in Israel this past week and one of the things, um, going on was the commemoration of the 20th anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. Uh, President Clinton, among others, came to Israel for the memorial and spoke at a rally that I attended in Tel Aviv on Saturday night that had 75 or 100,000 Israelis, which is a really large rally for Israel, people from across the political spectrum. 
And you know, for for Israel, that event was really a, a national trauma. Um, and this new book is out by Dana Fron, who was the Newsweek correspondent in Jerusalem for a long time. It's called "Killing a King: The Assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the Remaking of Israel." And there's a there was a lot of discussion in Israel this week about you know not only what brought Israeli society and Israeli politics to the point where. Uh, a right-wing, um, orthodox Jewish extremist, Yigal Amir, killed, you know, a fellow Jew and the prime minister of the country in the belief that Yitzhak Rabin in pursuing peace with the Palestinians was endangering the state of Israel. Um, but there was also a lot of discussion about what the assassination ultimately meant for Israel. Did it kill the peace process yeah. or did it kill the possibility of peace with the Palestinians? And it's, it's no surprise that Israelis are asking themselves that question at this moment when, you know, there's yet another um, crisis of violence uh, with Palestinians apparently, you know, unaffiliated uh, with any broader organization randomly stabbing Israelis in the streets, both in the West Bank and inside Israel. Uh, and the prospect of a negotiated two-state solution seems farther away than ever. But it's a very, very difficult question to parse. What did the assassination of this one man, no matter how remarkable he was, and he truly was, what did it really mean to the trajectory of Israeli-Palestinian relations? Was that the moment that uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace prospects really died? What do you think? Well, take me back to, I mean, that point when it happened, and, I, and I'm going to show my age here, too, because I believe I was a freshman in college when he was assassinated. The, the climate in the country at the time and what was in the reaction at the time. I mean, maybe like one way of answering that question is sort of asking it, how would, what would the reaction be if that happened today? I mean, so first of all, there's a lot of romanticism about Yitzhak Rabin in Israel, and some of it's justified, but let's remember that there was a campaign starting around, you know, shortly after the Oslo Accords mm -hmm. by Hamas, this was really when the suicide bombing got popularized, and they blew up a lot of buses, uh, a lot of, you know, discotheques, and uh, a lot of people got killed. Um, and there had been, by this time, a substantial souring on the peace process on the part of a lot of Israelis, even by the time Rabin was killed. Um, and the other thing is that when Rabin was killed, his successor, Shimon Peres, made a very substantial strategic mistake in not calling immediate elections and reaping the mourning benefit of it. And Perez didn't, I, I, I think it's been 20 years, but I think he didn't call elections until after the Syria, uh, after the, uh, a significant operation against Hezbollah in Lebanon, which was handled quite badly. And he gave people a lot of reason not to vote for what had been Rabin's party. And so I actually have always wondered if it was less the assassination of Rabin that damaged the peace process, but really the six months after it. Um, in addition, let's be candid, the peace process is a double dance and it has another partner. And despite the killing of Rabin, there were final status negotiations in 2000 that produced 
an all-but-agreed-to agreement between Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat that Arafat walked away from. Mm -hmm. And then it happened again between Omer and um, the Palestinians in 2004 or 2005. And so I think there were plenty of opportunities for the peace process to thrive after Rabin was killed, and there were failures both on the Israeli side, but also, we always forget this, the Palestinian side has never said yes. And that's, you know, makes, you know, I think the question of whether the peace process died with one person is, the answer to that is almost certainly not. You know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of what you say about Barack and Olmert having made offers that the Palestinians couldn't or, or wouldn't accept. Um, but I'm not sure Perez should should get the blame for the last opportunity after Rabin's but Paris assassination. Perez gets the blame for everything in Israeli politics. Well, maybe so. And, you know, it definitely maintained his streak of never winning an Israeli election. But more than that, I think the, the assassination itself was the outgrowth of a polarization in Israeli politics that really that that gulf between left and right in Israel was wide. Mm. That's how Yigal Amir became an assassin. And it's never been healed in all the years since. And actually, part of what was interesting about being there for the rally was the politics of unity. Um, you know, everyone working so hard to say, we are, we are all, all of us Israelis, left, right, and center, you know, are moved by the national trauma of this assassination. And we all think this is terrible. And now tomorrow we're going to go back to, to beating each other up mercilessly um, over this issue of what to do with the Palestinians, including a level of rhetoric and character assassination that is just astonishing and ultimately not that helpful for, um, for constructive democratic discourse. There was an op-ed published in Haaretz by the new head of the Anti-Defamation League cautioning about extremists who are still legitimizing violence inside the Israeli body politic. And so in many ways, the legacy of the assassination, you know, the assassination itself was a manifestation of a polarization inside Israel that has never mm -hmm. really been healed. And just as a quick thought experiment, how would history have been different had the assassin been, you know, a Palestinian? It's a totally different picture if the assassination is a Palestinian. Um, you know, Jews kill Palestinians in that territory sometimes, and Palestinians kill Jews in that territory sometimes. And look, sometimes they're politicians. Uh, you know, Rahavam Zaevi was a cabinet minister, um, you know, a right-wing cabinet minister, and was assassinated by a Palestinian. It did not fundamentally change the complexion of, uh, of anything. Um, I mean, it was, you know... It was objectionable, and and lots of Palestinian leaders have been killed by Israelis. Um, the there were two elements of this that made it, um, I think, particularly traumatic. One was that you know there is a very deep uh, kind of moral, you know, Jews don't kill Jews, um, uh, tribalism thing. Um, that just made it, you know, very hard for a lot of people to accept that the killer was himself Jewish. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is, I think when a, when a, 
when you get killed by your own side for going too far in accommodating the other side, that is a political message to other politicians who would go down that path. Right, and it has had a deterrent effect. You know, in that sense, it, it quote-unquote, it worked in a horrible way. Whether Rabin himself would have gone on to make peace with the Palestinians or not, we can't know. But it, it certainly did have the net effect of pulling Israeli politics to the right. And Israeli politics has been moving to the right, not only because of that, for a lot of other reasons. But but I think Ben's on to something here. I also think that whenever you have, you know, a leader being killed by someone on his own side, it it presents a fundamental challenge to a negotiating process because to have an effective ne- negotiation and agreement, you need leaders who are authoritative. And if a leader can be assassinated from within their own side, then, you know, how s- are they strong enough to make an agreement stick? The same kinds of questions that get asked about the Palestinian leadership today because they don't, you know, Abbas doesn't have enough support within his own society to implement an agreement. Well, you know, would any leftist prime minister in Israel have enough support within his own society to to withdraw settlers, you know, for example? Although, I mean, when you say hard to know whether Rabin would have gone further, I mean, I find it very hard to believe Rabin would have gone further than Olmert did in 2005. Yeah. And, you know, I think it didn't ultimately inhibit Israeli the Israeli side from making offers. It did inhibit a lot, you know, I think of the degree of public support for the peace process that we saw in 2003, 2004 has never been seen again since. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I just remember now thinking back to where I was when I heard it. And I mean, I was in college just beginning to understand the contours of the whole dynamic, taking a class uh, in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Wow. I was in grad school getting ready to write my dissertation on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Yeah. I think if I I can recall now, I remember thinking, I think I remember probably thinking what peace process at the time if this was sort of what was happening. But I was homesick in bed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. um, Ben, tell us about this new Twitter fight, which... Shockingly, it does not involve you or Vladimir Putin. It does not involve either me or Vladimir Putin. But <laughs> can it doesn't... you get Putin in on this? I, you know, can't seem to get him to fight at all. <laughs> um, so a couple weeks ago, uh, Glenn Greenwald and uh, a woman named Christine Fair, who is a professor of South Asian politics at Georgetown, uh, were on Al Jazeera together debating drones. And debating is a... Um, perhaps generous word for what turned out to be, I, I think a, a, a shouting match is probably a more accurate. It was, it was extremely unpleasant interaction and um, in which both accused the other of, of arrogance and lying. And um, in response, uh, there was a quite angry, Twitter war between both the two of them and a lot of whenever you get into a Twitter argument with Greenwald, you get hundreds of his, you know, followers tweet nasty things at you too. And so there was a lot of sort of bile directed, uh, toward Christine, who then wrote a lengthy piece in Lawfare, 
about the interaction and about the reality of the issue as she sees it. And I, the reason I mention this is that I actually think that Christine, who did not prevail in the uh, live debate on Al Jazeera at all. I think Glenn, even Christine would say Glenn, you know, cleaned her clock. Um, uh, but I think she actually did remarkably well in this long takeout of Glenn's position. And specifically, she cites a large amount of academic literature on public opinion in Pakistan on drones and effectiveness of drone strikes. And her basic argument is that the fierce anti-drone sentiment in Pakistan is actually a phenomenon of the Pakistani urban elites. And if you go out into the areas where there actually are drone strikes, uh, people have much more complicated views of them because they tend to be the people who are being oppressed by the people who are the targets of the drone strikes. And so the drone strikes tend to be uh, more popular and for many people seem to be regarded as the lesser of two evils. Um, so that was Christine's argument, and I just wanted to uh, throw it out on the table and let uh, and see what you guys make make of it. That's you know that's fascinating. I guess you know part part of it is that sort of you Western liberals, you think you know what the little people in the third world think, but don't be so patronizing. You don't really know how complicated and difficult their choices are, right? That's what she's saying. And given the, the nasty circumstances in which they live, they prefer drone strikes, even with collateral damage, you know, even though they themselves are the ones who sometimes die um, than Taliban rule. That's Is that more or less her contention? Well, hang on. Let me just <laughs> read you her contention. Uh, so I'm going to read an ex, uh, a somewhat extended excerpt from Christine's article here and just throw it out on the table for you guys to chew on. Speaking of the Pakistan case, which I know well, those in the federally administrated tribal areas in closest proximity to the various terrorists view the drones either as the least of all evils or even as their best source of protection. One Pakistani editorial from 2012 summed up Pakistan's dilemma. The real threat to our nation comes from the heavily armed outfits marching across our northern areas rather than the strikes manned, made by unmanned planes. It is true that such strikes ignite a degree of anger and thus spur on militancy, but this is a relatively minor matter blown out of proportion compared to the threat of militancy from within. She writes, Moreover, many residents in Fatah vigorously support the U.S. armed drone program and even compare them to Ababil, the holy swallows mentioned in the Quran, who repelled an army of elephants that invaded Mecca by dropping black stones upon the invaders. When I raised this point on Al Jazeera, Mr. Greenwald dismissed it as, a, as rank propaganda, even though this view originated from residents of Fatah in Pakistan itself. Um, another set of studies that Mr. Greenwald distorted were the various surveys by Pew. Mr. Greenwald asserted that the vast majority of Pakistanis opposed the drones, according to Pew's surveys of Pakistan. I attempted to explain the, major the problem with this assertion, beginning with the simple fact 
that majorities or large minorities of Pew's overwhelmingly urban samples had never even heard of the drone program, for this question about the familiarity with the program was then used as a gateway question to solicit respondents' views of the program. So that, she goes on at some length, but the basic proposition is that our public opinion data about Pakistan is quite bad, and we, uh, to the extent that we have data, it actually doesn't support the assumption that we're making, at least not if you talk to non-urban people. So, look, I mean, I can't argue about the data or what people in Fatah actually think, and... Um, but setting that aside, I think there's an underlying critique of the Greenwald thesis, um, because the premise of this thesis is that what drives hatred of the United States, what drives extremism, what drives militancy is American military intervention. And if we just left these people alone, they would leave us alone. That's, that's the premise of this critique from the left. Um, and she's, you know, what she's saying is there's some data that throws shade on that premise. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise is absurd on its face. Islamist extremism is, is not a creation of American military intervention in the Middle East. Um, it is an outgrowth of a long process of radicalization and ideological struggle within the Arab world um, that has, you know, transmogrified and spread all across the Muslim world. But the idea that it was generated by things the United States did is absurd. Um, but if there's data from the field that actually, you know, goes to the heart of that thesis, so much the better. I mean, is this polling data, basically? I mean, is this sort of someone going in and trying to take, you know, the sense of what, you know, are you in yay or nay in favor of drone strikes? I guess I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding well, what, what, what Well, her basic argument is that the people who have tried to do that, to try to take public opinion right. data in Pakistan, have almost always focused on urban elites, which is the part that's most... So they get these very skewed data samples to the extent that anybody has tried to do polling in the regions most affected by drones, they seem to produce other responses. Uh, And she acknowledges that that data is preliminary, but she thinks it's largely ignored and that the data that people in the West rely on is highly skewed. I guess my question actually then is, so what? I mean, is it, if if what that leads us to conclude is that there is some counter-narrative to the idea that drone strikes are actually making more enemies than we're killing, okay, that's interesting, but it strikes me that there's no causality you can prove there, right? I mean, you can, I mean, I mean, to your point, Tamara, I mean, I would, imagine that most people would think that drone strikes to some degree exacerbate hostility towards the U.S. and that certainly, you know, give at least a, a public propaganda reason for, you know, militants to recruit and those kinds sure, of things. Sure, but that's a different argument. I mean, I, I think at the heart of Glenn Greenwald's worldview about American policy in the Muslim world or military engagement in the Muslim world is essentially... Um, a blame America first thesis that if things, if nasty things are going on over there, it's because we did something. So I think it's a blame Ben Wittes first thesis. Well, I, it's as, always a safe bet. You know, <laughs> maybe I missed something, Ben, but as you described this Al Jazeera segment, you did not feature in it, right? This Twitter war, you didn't feature I, in it? I mean, I was so, a little offended to be left out, to okay. be honest. And you I, know, and I, and we and, know that you are the root of all evil. 
Nonetheless, in this particular circumstance, it may be that it's not entirely your fault. But here's a question, okay, in the so what category again. Let's just say that for sake of argument this is true, in that in among non-urban, not elites in Pakistan, there's actually a much more nuanced view towards drone strikes than some people saying, like, you know what, I'm willing to tolerate it because it's cleaning up the neighborhood, which sort of sounds like where she's going with it. Is there something that we, useful we can get out of that? U.S. policy, I mean, is there something we can leverage? Well, I, uh, I, I think it, I mean, if it were demonstrably true, it would shake up this binary that we've all kind of internalized, which is that, you know, hey, drone strikes radical, you know, maybe solve short-term counterterrorism problems, but they radicalize people, and you're weighing the cost in radicalization against the benefit in, in immediate CT. And well, what if the answer, what if the reality is, yeah, it may radicalize some people, but it also really helps local communities uh, reassert their uh, ability to govern themselves against people who are oppressing them. That really sort of complicates the sense of what local reaction to it is, if it's true. Can you imagine the federal government in Pakistan sort of making that argument and kind of PSAs at <laughs> rural bus stops big, with drones. Big, friendly predator. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, what I guess what I'm really getting at <laughs> I is... For I, one, not, I, I, for one... I want to see the friendly predator cartoon that comes on on Saturday morning. In that Pakistan? That is what I want to see. In Urdu? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, that, that's a public diplomacy Christine project. Christine Fair and her fail. pet predator. Uh, no, but I mean, really, I mean, there's, there's, there's a way that this could affect and change the U.S. debate. What I'm really getting at, and I'm not proposing that this is even doable, but, I mean, is there a way that... You know, could you could the U.S. exploit that reality if it's true to its advantage in Pakistan? Well, I, I don't know that it's. I mean, or would we even want to? Yeah, I mean, look, the the if there's an avenue for exploitation, so to speak, on behalf of American objectives, it would be if you're actually creating a, an opening that you know by droning um, bad guys that you can then go in and establish some more inclusive. Um, humane form of governance. But the U.S. isn't going to do that in Fatah. It can't do that in Fatah. So I'm not really sure that it it's germane. Okay. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, ben, would you like to go first here? On I would be delighted to. My object lesson uh, comes to me this afternoon through a Twitter feed uh, at Arab Scarab, which I... Uh, as in the Beatle? As in the Beatle. Which I, which I urge you all to, to follow. Arab Scarab um, has um, not only uh, endorsed my Twitter, my my proposed martial arts bout with Vladimir Putin. She has proposed that we tag team and that she uh, join my Wait, team. Two on one against Vlad? No, he would get a partner here. too. Ah. Uh, and she has sent a resume, which she tweeted this afternoon. Uh, which shows her doing all the things that Putin, you know, does. Wrestling lions? So she's, you know, she's, Putin's with a hunting rifle. She's got a hunting rifle. Putin's, uh, horses, riding horses in the cold. So is she. She's got herself shooting handguns like Putin. Only she notes that she does it in heels. Uh, I'd like to see Putin shoot handguns in heels. Yeah, she's done, uh, she's got some martial arts things. And she cuddles with her cat, uh, well, as does Putin. She says, Vlad likes to cuddle with cats. 
I will cuddle the fuck out of my cat. Um, and so well, I just, resume. I just oh. think uh, Arab Scarab gets a, uh, a big shout out today and uh, she can be on my team anytime. Awesome. I love that you're just like, collecting adherence. I, you know, like a, this, you're like you're like forming your like, like a militia leader. It's yeah. it's it's great. There, we're we're gonna march on Washington. You have a oh hundred hundred <laughs> boots right behind you. All right, uh, uh, tomorrow, would you like to do your object? Next? Yeah, sure. So, continuing on the theme of uh, of unity in Israel around the 20th anniversary of Rabin's assassination and and arguments over who owns Rabin's legacy and what does it mean, it was. It was interesting to see just a microcosm of this walking on the streets in Tel Aviv. You know, um, you might remember that when Rabin was killed, President Clinton, who was then in office, flew out to Israel for the funeral and famously to Israelis spoke Hebrew in his eulogy of Rabin at the end of his eulogy said, Shalom, Haver, goodbye, friend. And this became a bumper sticker that you saw all over Israel in the years after the assassination, just quoting Clinton, Shalom Chaver. So around Tel Aviv in, in advance of the 20th anniversary rally, there was this cynical poster that was going up all over that said, Pa'am B'Shana Chaver. In other words, once a year, friend, we remember you, um, implying in the rest of the year, forget about it. So that's one piece of, of the legacy of 20 years after the assassination. And then on top of that, on this street, someone had stuck another bumper sticker representing another appropriation of this phrase. It said, Shabbat Shalom, Chaver. <laughs> In a, a good Sabbath, Chaver. And in small uh, letters, it said, Shomrim Shabbat Biyachad. We keep the Sabbath together. So in other words, using the assassination and this resonant phrase from Clinton's eulogy, as a rebuke to secular Israelis that they should be keeping Shabbat. Uh, so I just thought this was a wonderful microcosm of uh, how Rabin's assassination... Um, Putting the irrational in rational security. <laughs> yeah, there you go, but still dividing the country 20 years later. Oh, yay. So much yay? progress. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so my object actually... I, I, I which can't... member of your family served in which army this week? Oh, actually, so this is a thing now. So apparently we were mixed up in the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, my oh, yeah, goodness. You, you, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently this is the... Uh, listeners will remember I, that. We I, would expect nothing less oh, from you, Shane. Oh, really, so. Shane. Listeners will remember that I recently discovered that my sixth or seventh, I can't remember, great-grandfather, maybe it was my fifth. No, it was my fifth. Was, uh, was an officer in the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. I just love that. Isn't that great? I love it, too. Uh, and I have not heard back about my application to the Society of the Cincinnati. <laughs> um, but my seventh great-grandfather, apparently... Well, it is it is definitely true that they came from they came from England to Salem and that I had a grandfather who, uh, one of the witnesses to his will was one of the more prominent figures in the Salem Witch Trials. A defendant? Uh, no, he was like kind of one of these flunkies who went around and rounded up witches for the court. Wow. <laughs> this <laughs> flunky bailiff <laughs> or whatever. The McCarthyite in your Seriously, in your past. a jackbooted thug that was presiding over the will and testament of my seventh great grandfather who died young. But that man's son... Uh, would have definitely been a teenager at the time and was married in the Salem after the trails were over. Anyway, I'm hearing from other relatives now that I'm getting in touch with them saying, yeah, you know, like, we were, we did get mixed up in that. There are some records. Now, there's not a lot of records, period, for the Salem Witch Trials, 
But the fact that branches of the family kind of are aware that somehow the Kinneys were involved uh, in the witch trials is very exciting to me. And hopefully, I want to know if if your family was pro witch or anti witch. Knowing my family, I'm sure we burned the shit out of those witches. (laughs) (laughs) My family were not like great disruptors. I could see us really going in for groupthink. I'm afraid to say, Uh, and then sweeping it all under a rug. Mm. We were also very good at that. Uh, there's a reason so I never do this So many books history. you can write about your family history, Seriously, Shane. right. Wait till they're all dead, though. Um, no, that's not even my object lesson. But my object lesson this week, I can't actually show you because it is uh, locked in a... Uh, not locked, but it is in the basement archive of the Hoover Institution. How mysterious. Uh, in Palo Alto, yeah, which is a phenomenal collection, by the way, of documentation on the 20th century. Just... All manner of it's historical fa- it's events. Spectacular. It's amazing. It truly, I, I had no idea until I went out. I was actually out there talking about um, cyber warfare and espionage for a new exhibit they're opening called um, Double Exposure about the secret police of the last Russian czars and the people that they were, the Bolsheviks that they were tracking down. Wow. Uh, one of whom is the key art for the exhibit who later became the first head of the Russians, the Soviet secret police. So interesting how history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> they uh, have, I've recently discovered with the, re- not discovered, but are promoting with the release of the new movie Bridge of Spies about the uh, famous um, prisoner exchange for Gary Powers. Uh, they have uh, all of James Donovan's papers who, wow. of course, was the former, uh, was the guy who negotiated the exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had this. The Tom tr- Hanks character. Tom Hanks' character, exactly. Uh, former general counsel for the OSS. And they have in this spectacular little filing cabinet, this framed copy of a memo that he was typing up, uh, from Berlin as back to, uh, U.S. government sources, or, uh, his, not his, you know, not his masters because he wasn't officially there, but documenting everything that he was doing, who he was meeting with. And it's remarkable. It plays out exactly like this in the film. Uh, so it was really neat just to sort of hold this kind of memo. It's in this wonderful frame. Um, and it's actually sitting next to uh, another document in a frame, which is the um, uh, the strike order, the World War II bombing strike order uh, for Hiroshima. Wow. Which looks no different in any respect from a normal bombing run typed up order, except that under the category for bomb or munition, it just says special. Wow. Creepy. That's all that's different, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a tremendous archive. If you're ever out at Hoover, go check it out. It is really phenomenal. And um, the weather's just awesome in Palo Alto. Yeah. Oh, we all moved to Palo Alto. So, Can we move the podcast to so Palo Alto? nice, yeah. We should definitely look for a chance to do a roadshow in Palo Alto. That um, brings us to our our non-sponsor this yes, week. Yes, who is our non-sponsor this week? Who did who did the show not come? Well, to I by? can tell you who. I'm not going to fly to Palo Alto. That's right. Our non-sponsor this week is United Airlines, That's who, right. whose Wi-Fi sucks. That's right. If you are looking to spend six hours flying through the air with intermittent, frustrating. Sometimes With hostile the connections to the planes in their fleet and surly flight attendants. That's right. Oh yeah, fly United. Fly United. <laughs> um, they don't sponsor Thanks us for nothing. United. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad. I don't know. I, I had two flights on United last week, and they both sucked. And um, yeah. Uh, don't fly United. You know who I would say is not would not be a good candidate for a non-sponsor though is Virgin America. Which might be my favorite airline. Yeah, so Virgin America, if you're listening to this, we just sent something nice about you for free. For free. <laughs> okay? We and might something not bad about again. your competition. <laughs> so, so just 
when you're dishing out the goods, just think about that. Remember us, Richard Branson. <laughs> are you sure we're not violating any laws here, guys? <laughs> These are opinions. These are my informed opinion. I defy anyone to tell me that they had awesome Wi-Fi on any United flight. James Fallows tweets about this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So there. Yeah. So there. So there. <laughs> That brings us to the end of the podcast for National Security. Because <laughs> what else is there to say? Uh, for as long as we're going to be on the air, much longer, is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Yeah, if, we're on the, if we're back next week, it won't be any thanks to United. That's right. And it won't be broadcasting from a United airline anywhere. Uh, you can check out our webpage, www.rationalsecurity. No, SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. That's yeah. where you go. Just, yeah, cheese. Cheese. But don't, do it, but don't you do it from a United flight. Don't do it from a United <laughs> Yeah, airline. you won't be able to load that webpage. You can follow us at RATL Security on Twitter unless you're trying to do it from United Airlines Aircraft, um, in which case, you know, you can just think about what you might like to tweet at us when you land. And when you land, when you do, uh, you should definitely download the podcast and leave a comment and five-star rating for us wherever you download your podcasts. It's a great way to let others know about the podcast, which we hope you enjoy. Our podcast is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music this week is performed by Arab Scarab and the 100 Tiny Footprints. Oh, awesome. nice. Good. This is well, like an emo band. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, of course, you're too smart for that. You know that our music is performed, as always, by the lovely Sophia Yan, who I'm sure when she comes back to the United States from her redoubt in Hong Kong, does not fly United Airlines. <laughs> Hope not. Hope not. Otherwise, you'll never hear from her. On behalf of my friends Benjamin Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.